Hello there, VJS. Uh, this is the last podcast of the semester. Last teaching podcast of the semester. Last teaching podcast. Exciting. Uh, it's exciting. For everyone. For everyone. Perhaps um, most of all for you and me, since it is now uh, nearly 10 o'clock yeah, and we're, we're just beginning, beginning this. <laughs> cool. Yeah. And because I couldn't get my act together to do two yesterday, we also podcasted. Last night. It's just uh, nonstop. Simone was like, oh, mom, you're going to be up till midnight again. (laughs) Maybe. We might. Probably. Now, I don't know if, I think people, most people know this, that my bedtime is 1030. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Not anymore. Pushing past. Not in pandemic land. Bedtime has not been 1030. In the new homeschooling pandemic sitch. It's hard. It's hard. My it's routine hard. is destroyed. Is destroyed. Well, in at least half of our work days, one of us is <coughs> doing yeah, grammar, mm-hmm. vocabulary, mm-hmm. math, mm-hmm. science. Oh, shit. We didn't do the science experiment. Probably oh, didn't get matches. At the, no. Well, someone will have to go out in the morning and get matches. Yeah. We have to make a cloud tomorrow. Cool. When's that due? Well, you know, it's flexible. Yeah, it's homeschool. Theoretically so. tomorrow, but... We can we can do it tomorrow. She's got the rest done. Anyway, you right, guys don't gotta, need to hear all about. We gotta get going about this. We gotta get all right. going. Whew. So, <laughs> got a dump of adrenaline. <laughs> fail homeschool fail. Um, okay, so these guys read two articles. Two scholarly articles. Two, well, they were both short. Um, but yeah, it's two scholars. Damn, this is a 300 level class, right? Yeah, it's for yeah. real, you know. They were out of LAR, the Latin American Research Review. Mm-hmm. Recent? Yes, 2019, very recent. Whoa, cutting very edge. Recent. Cutting edge. Cutting edge cutting scholarship, edge cool. I'm stoked. Yeah, we were supposed to read four, but I made some cuts. Four Not articles? Not for one class, oh. two, two for one, two for another. But I ended up cutting some of the stuff. All right. Anyway, these guys are also finishing up research papers and whatnot, so... All right, so the first article that we're going to be talking about is called Confronting Crime by Ourselves, Trust Mm -hmm. in Neighbors, Trust in Authorities, an Anti-Crime Organization. And it's by someone named Daniel Zizumbo Kolunga. So anyway. Okay, that's all I need to know. That's all you need. Well, let me tell you. This sounds like this is related to to themes that you and I care about. Yeah, it is, actually. Talk about? It is. On the reg? Quite. All right, page 575. Neighborhood watches, communitarian police forces, paramilitary self-defense movements, and harmless anti-criminal committees are some of the types of organizations that can evolve from citizens' attempts to address their concerns about crime. In Mexico and other countries, these organizations have introduced social uncertainty and have seriously challenged the power of the state. In one of the most extreme examples, citizens concerned about the deforestation near the town of Cheran in the state of Michoacan, western Mexico, mobilized their community to violently confront the illegal loggers that cross the town every day. Soon after, they formed a policia comunitaria and expelled the elected authorities from the municipality. Today, citizens of Cheran manage their own security, elect their own authorities outside the established electoral system, and abstain from participating in state and federal elections. Damn. Yeah, man. Wow. You want another example before we talk about it? Yeah. 
Okay, so here's another example, also on page 575. This is all right in the opening of this piece. Similarly, tired of being extorted by drug cartels, agricultural producers from Michoacan turned to their community to start an armed paramilitary movement popularly referred to as the Autodefensas de Tierra Caliente, the self-defense movement of Tierra Caliente. This group occupied several municipalities in the state, Michoacan. Michoacan again. Okay. It collected donations, recruited men, distributed guns, and assassinated alleged drug cartel members in the region. At its peak, which mm. was in January of 2014, this organization controlled an area larger than the state of Delaware and seriously challenged the capacity of the Mexican state. Wow. How about that? That's wild. That's wild. Like Michoacan is pretty serious with... Uh, cartel control, mm -hmm. right? A pretty serious place of... I mean, these days, I feel like you could say that about many states. But... Right. I guess that's... Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Um, really does challenge the Weberian view of the state as the, you know, monopoly on legitimate use of force. Right. And so I guess the kind of questions that come to my mind is in trying to trace the dialectic of this development of uh, parastate functions, you know, I mean, what are the critical, what are the critical, right? Obviously it's in a dialectic relationship. It's not like, like it both mm -hmm. weakens and emerges from weaknesses Correct, yeah. in the state. And so I guess I'm just starting to think about like what are important critical junctures uh -huh. at wit in this process. In a certain in a certain regard in some of these more I think in the next piece we're going to talk okay. a little bit about that. This okay. we're going to talk more about uh, kind of cultural okay sort of attitude attitudinal stuff as opposed to kind of critical junctures. Okay, right. This piece is really looking at um, popular opinion and that kind correct, of correct correct so sort of thinking about public opinion surveys and methodologically what is this piece how's this piece like is it is it like i mean is he a, a social scientist in a numbersy kind of way or is he an anthropologist more of a numbersy kind of way okay um so this is looking at at public opinion data okay and trying to parse the relationship between trust in community, trust in authority, and um, organizing into some of these self-defense groups. Okay. Okay. I, I think... I think you're going to read a quote that talks about this a little bit, but right, that doesn't necessarily have to mean something so extreme as those examples that we read about to begin, course. right? right? It could be like a neighborhood right. watch. Right, it could a also, TNT group. Yeah, like our sort of, right? Or just the, like, you know, I mean... That's in, tomorrow's Neighborhoods Today yeah, in Syracuse. <laughs> in Syracuse, it's our... Civic organization. Or even, like, you know, I think about in... I don't know if this still occurs, but, you know, the those signs, at least when we were kids, that would be, like, those neighborhood watch mm -hmm. signs that would be, like, this, watch, like, we watch out. We call the police. We're all watching out, you know? Yeah. And so yeah, some of those, it is, like, even just, around. like, putting up signs that are, like, neighbors are watching neighbors, you know, that could be in this category. So it's like a very broad category that includes everything from, you know, putting up a sign that's like, we're watching out for each other. But what's to like, what's you know. interesting here is I assume, so 
I mean, when I think of the neighborhood watch in the United States and I think about those signs from my that from like distant hazy memories of childhood yeah, yeah. is that like those signs were like we call the cops, right? Like it was mm-hmm, about mm-hmm. organizing citizens who were willing to exercise the levers of the state. Right. And right. this is really Right, we're gonna come after you. Right. I mean, and the most extreme version is <laughs> right. like we don't trust the state. And well, and even the examples of signs in the Mexican case are more like if we catch you, we'll kill you kind of signs right. as opposed to like we're gonna call the cops on right. you. It's more like don't right. do this or I or mean, else. I've been thinking so much recently about that time that we were in Oaxaca and we were at the Noche de Rabanos uh-huh, right? yeah. with the radishes and it is this massive. The Socolo is filled with people. It's right. just, so Socolo main plaza. It's just filled with people. And there's like supposedly a line that snakes through right, correct. all of the, the all of the in, in one of the things that they do in, in Oaxaca is they carve these really elaborate like uh, religious Their nativity scenes nativity carved scenes in radishes. Out of radishes. They're amazing. I mean Beautiful. it's like yeah, it's oh. a, they're very cool. They're cool. Beautiful, maybe. Yeah, beautiful is maybe not the right word, but they're they're cool. Like people have spent a lot of time to make these radishes like some kind of amazing Virgin Mary. Like right, they're pretty fascinating. Out of a radish. They're f- anyway, they're interesting. I liked it. It was neat. I thought it was very cool to see, but I just I've been thinking so much of that scene that we witnessed where. Like, there's this line, and supposedly we're all going through the line. You right. know, there's the barricades and the barriers. And at some point, like, this woman slips through. I can't remember what exactly caused her to confront the police that were just, like, chilling. Yeah. Like, they weren't really doing anything. And at some point, she confronts the police, and she's, like, <laughs> she's like in their face, like, no hay control. <laughs> like, there's no control. Like, like, maybe they tried to make her do something, and she's, like, that like <laughs> or like, some other people snuck in and they did nothing right i or can't even remember like but like the, remember, but I remember the concept of no i control, control. <laughs> like has occurred to me so much over yeah. a the last eight weeks yeah. and b you know yeah. um it is a sort of household phrase <laughs> it definitely is a household phrase around <laughs> no here control. but it seems relevant yeah. i mean basically no i control yeah absolutely right? i mean that's what's 100 percent. okay right? So that's the terrain we're in. Should that's I read the this next one? Go for it. Yeah. Organizations of this type vary in their structure, challenges, methods, and specific objectives. However, most anti-crime organizations, even the most violent and sophisticated, start from small and seemingly harmless individual attempts by citizens to fight crime with the help of their community. Mm-hmm. Vigilantes. But right. in a, it, maybe they start out just as a few... Right, well, and I think, I mean, this is partly, I mean, if we're thinking about research methods, which I know most, about half of my class are seniors, and they're definitely not interested in thinking about research methods anymore. But for the half Mm -hmm. of the class that is still Mm -hmm. going to be writing senior theses eventually, I mean, one of the things that he's doing is justifying why is it that it's relevant to look at this question that's like, do you organize with your neighbors against crime, Right. right? Which is like the question that he's using to sort of assess this. Like, I forget how the wording is. I didn't write it down, but it's like basically like something like this, right? Have you joined a group? Right. To, and ultimately, you know, this question matters because. He's saying that this is related, like, the, the, these paramilitary groups don't just start out as full fledged paramilitary groups, right? They start uh-huh. out as citizens binding together to work against crime. And 
This is an interesting, the... it's an interesting entry into that whole literature and political science about the, you know, the complexity of social capital, right, mm -hmm. and social ties, yes. right? Like it's he's about... definitely in it, in this sort of sense of what do we understand by trust and how do we right. sort of, I mean, he doesn't go into what we mean by it, but like we always treat trust and these social capital things as a pro and a benefit. An and unavoid like, good. And, and maybe it's, I mean. What is this exactly, right? There's definitely, yeah. he's definitely more neutral on yeah. the effects of this, you know. It's the kind of stuff I the, love the in The spoiler science. alert is that, you know, trust in your community does lead you more likely to be active in these groups. But is that a good thing or a bad thing? I think he's saying maybe not, right? That this is actually weakening states further. Right, right. I like that. I like mm -hmm. this. I like where this is going. I'm yeah. gonna. I'm gonna keep riding this horse here. Go for it. The biggest risks and opportunities of anti-criminal action are contingent. That is, they depend on whether citizens are successful in fighting crime with impunity. Citizens who successfully fight citizens who successfully fight crime stand to benefit from their actions. Okay, this is surprisingly dense. Okay, really, if I was gonna sum that up in more plain language, he's saying that like basically the the benefits of this only accrue when you actually succeed. So it's risky. Right. Right. Well, but, yeah. So that there is a risk, right? And that the benefits can be large, some of which I think reminded me actually a little bit of um, Elizabeth Jean Wood's book on the Salvadoran Civil War, which talks a lot about the pleasure and agency kind of thing, uh -huh. um, where uh -huh. some of it seems to be, I mean, in a sort of... <coughs> Again, this doesn't necessarily mean a positive way, but right. that where people feel good about getting retribution, right, about punishing yeah. these assholes, right, that have been making their life miserable. Maybe they feel good about actually getting justice, which the right. state has failed at, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but again, both of those are contingent on success, right? You, right? you don't get either of those things if you actually can't hold those criminals or whoever to account. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They might also get the other potential the benefit, which again is contingent on success, is like maybe you get your stuff back, right? Like mm -hmm. maybe mm -hmm. if you actually successfully right, you protect get your land, uh, you, or pr you protect your, your stuff livelihood. from future incursions, and maybe even you get back something that was stolen if you manage to find the criminal. Right. right. He stole all your wood, and now you found him, and you got your wood back. Um, but in the contrast, the flip side of this, which is also I think embedded in that quote that you just read uh -huh. is that there's also a risk mm -hmm. um, that attends it, which is that if you're unsuccessful, mm -hmm. right, there may be um, serious repercussions if you're fucking with cartels correct. or other kinds of people who are participating in an illegal economy and have shown that they don't really care correct. about law and order. Correct. They don't really care about the proper channels. They're not going to sue you. They are going to kill you. Correct. Right. Or the hostage that you were trying to rescue or, you know, the like the, whatever, the person they've kidnapped or what. Right. So right. That, You're going to end up in a mass grave with other campesinos. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the, the lack of success is dangerous. Um, and the other thing that is pro problematic, potentially, even if there is success, is that you are potentially still acting outside the law and could face legal repercussions. So I guess right. that one is not contingent, right? Which is that you could actually be, you know, if you're 
win or lose, I guess, right? You could be punished you could by be punished. relevant or if you thought me, the legitimate st- authorities. If you thought the state could actually punish you and find you, right, that this is also uh, a risk. I mean, it's a really interesting... That word risk that keeps popping up makes me think, like... It just makes me think about how one of the central things that in a way we should be or are implicitly perhaps asking of the state is for some smoothing out of risk. Absolutely. Like, right, we want to cede that responsibility and risk to the state. Um Mm-hmm. When the state works, right? So, I mean, it's like sort of in a certain regard, I feel like what this is setting up is the, right, this is setting up his puzzle, right? Right. So this is like, you may get benefits, but the benefits only accrue if you're successful. If you're not successful, the risks are great. And in either case, you risk potential, right, right sanction from the state. And so why do this? Right. right. Like, I think it's a little bit setting up his question right. of like, why then? And as I think about this, it's like, well, if I don't have, before I read more, if I think about myself in this kind of scenario, right? Yeah. Um, well, if I don't believe that the state has the capacity mm-hmm. to smooth the risk. Right. Or if I don't believe that the state has an interest in smoothing the risk, mm-hmm. right? I mean, I'm thinking about right now in the United States, by the way. Right. right, oh, yeah. Like, it's risky out there. Right. Like, literally leaving my house to go to the grocery store tonight was, right. in a way... A risk. A risk. And... And the federal government does not seem interested in smoothing the risk. No, does not right. seem interested in smoothing the risk. And so I go to trusted institutions... Right, Wegmans. Wegmans. Who's <laughs> doing a lot of sanitization. That and like, seems to yeah. be interested in smoothing and managing the risk. Right. And taking responsibility for that risk. Right. And doing things, right? Like, I... In our community more broadly, right? It's like a private actor that seems to be protecting the community in a certain way. Right. We're, like, making this metaphor work, I think, you know. Right. I guess as I just think about... I just It just hadn't really occurred to me that there are both... That you have both... In a sense, you have two dimensions of this is capacity and interest is not really the right dimension. Like, it's not the right label for it, but like a state that's oriented toward that problem right. of managing risk right. or smoothing right, right, risk. Right. right. And that, like, at least in that category, right? right? Where we could say that our state might be interested in smoothing our risk in some categories, but not in this one. Right. And we could think about that with, okay, illegal logging, cartels, right? Some of these right. actions where you could. Even imagine a state may have be smoothing risk in some places and not in others. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, in some of these areas, I think the state is, as we've talked about in this, BJS is all about the state, right? right. Violence, justice, and the state. Right. Um, I mean, we see states that are not doing much of anything, right? right? But we can also think even in some of these places where the state is going to be more active in certain areas than others for a variety of reasons, including things like co-optation, and, mm-hmm. which we hear about more in the next piece that we okay. read. Okay. Well, this one, me... the state actors are kind of... Uh, not trustworthy? Well, no, no, they're not, because this is a public opinion one, they're, they're, they're kind relevant, of absent right? in a certain yeah. regard, right? I mean, it's like... Yeah, it's not an institutional story. For... It's an opinion story. It's a behavior story. Correct. It's, right? a, it's not, correct. It's not institutions. Yeah. Those are good. Those are good. Yeah. All right. I'm going to keep reading, but I need a quick, quick sip to wet my whistle. Okay. 
All right, I'm back. Uh, page 579. Undoubtedly, there are reasons to expect citizens to delegate the authorities, delegate to the authorities when they see them as untrustworthy. I'm sorry, see them as trustworthy. <laughs> um, right here they're delegating because they. this is they what trust. we were just talking about, right? right? They believe the authorities are trustworthy right. in maybe both intent and mm -hmm. in capability, mm -hmm. right? When the likelihood of state authorities intervening effectively is high, citizens can expect to obtain a positive outcome from, the reporting, from reporting crime and to incur legal costs if they take the law into their own hands. If I trust the state can actually do what it says it's going to do and this is where we opened yeah. with our citizen watch we call yep. the cops on you right yes. we see you and we call 911 right? right we trust that you're going to respond since appealing to law enforcement authorities is is less costly and risky than confronting criminals directly yes ceteris paribus as the profit probability of effective police intervention increases the relative utility of citizens taking the law into their own hands decreases right mm -hmm. okay makes sense to me right like i definitely would rather have the cops deal with right the crazy neighbor that's screaming profanity and punching his brother or whoever or right? whoever you right know, that's then, tumbled out of the yeah. you yeah. know side door two doors down yeah from our house right punching the right after we moved in here like crazy. cool yeah. how's your neighborhood uh, i called the cops yeah you called the cops i called the cops because i trust them yeah well, I mean, that is also positional, right? They didn't right? come. They didn't come, no. <laughs> because they've got other things to do at Syracuse yeah. that yeah. deal with... But also some people in <laughs> Syracuse... Italians having a having family, a family brawl. brawl. But also some people in Syracuse wouldn't have called the cops. Of right? course. Like, we called the cops because we actually tr trust... Right? What was this? That, 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 it is, that the, it is less costly and risky than right. confronting criminals directly. Yeah. That we, when we perceived that cost and risk, we perceived calling the cops to be less lower risky. cost, yeah, lower risk, which was is not true for every person in Syracuse. No, no, probably true for less than half of the people less in Syracuse. Less than half of the just people in Syracuse. Speaking probabilistically, yeah. yeah, and demographically, and even and saying that even with that, we got no outcome. <laughs> right, right, but I've never had the police come when we've called. No, <laughs> we've called a few times. They never, they never have come. The only time that I've interacted with police in the neighborhood is when Patton Ellen's uh, alarm was going off next door. Oh, and one time I was mowing the yard and the cops were showing up. Oh, weird. Uh -huh. They were out of town. All right. Well, um, they used to come all the time for the junk. The uh, Sorry, the... The junkie. <laughs> Two doors down. <laughs> he finally killed himself, so... They don't come anymore. But how's your neighborhood? Yeah, well, All right, it's uh, nice. Actually, we live in a nice neighborhood. It's, 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 you're right. It is <laughs> one of really the nicest nice. neighborhoods in Syracuse. It's really nice. We love it. Actually. I love it here. Um, I know that's actually not not sarcastic Sarcasm. at all. No, I, we love this neighborhood. Um, page five seventy nine. I propose that trust informs citizens' willingness to engage in an anti-crime organization attempt on two levels. First, distrust. I was just talking about two levels or two dimensions. Let's see if they're mm -hmm. the same dimensions. I think they're a little different. All right. First, distrust in law enforcement sets the stage for citizens to consider alternative sources of criminal justice. Second, a citizen's perception of the trustworthiness of her community informs her likelihood of turning to her neighbors to confront the difficult to confront criminals directly. Mm -hmm. Right. So trusting your neighbors. Right. Significant. Yeah, so I mean, I, I think this is the last quote That's I actually give really you from this article because we have right. a lot of material to cover tonight. But I mean, part of the point that he makes in this article is that like if you actually don't think your neighbors will stand with you, your risk is 
much more much higher, right? Right. That like if you're like against this cartel, we can maybe get ten ten folks to come out. Not enough. Not enough, right? So like yes, the sort of base you have to have this distrust of the state. You have to think the state isn't gonna come help you, but then you also have to sort of believe that your neighbors And will, this is where the right? social ties, the the density of social networks, right. the density the intensity of social trust. This is why it helps like if everyone's you know, in your family or going to church going together, to church together or have other kinds of strong, institutions that, you know, yeah, that they, where you yeah. have strong ties in a neighborhood that those neighborhoods are more likely to bind where when you have weaker ties that those you're not actually going to feel protected to join in a citizens group if you think that no one is actually going to do anything right. but you and then right. you really are just like, hey, cartel, like, right. you know, right, which right. you at least want to have a posse if you're. Yeah, you know, <laughs> I guess the <laughs> thing be that, doing that. I mean, I guess that this is the this is where. I mean, I feel like every po- <laughs> I'm going to say something that I don't know. Just make sure you don't have to bleep it out. I don't have to bleep be it out, work. but I feel like every. <laughs> I feel like every public opinion piece, like every piece of public opinion research in political science, to me, simply begs an institutional question. Yes. Yeah. Right. Well, we're like, going to get there in the next piece. Okay. So I, I, in a way, I mean, part of when you're like, you assign two scholarly articles, I mean, I think public right. opinion pieces, there's not much to do with them, right? I mean, right. I think they're fascinating. We've looked at a number of ways of using public opinion. I think the data is interesting, but they're often not. It's like the first step. Yeah. Right. It's yeah. a little, it's a little taster. Yeah. Because the real actions institutions. Well, like I why mean, you trust your neighbors, why you don't trust this. I mean, sometimes why you here. don't trust the state. Whatever. Anyway, yeah. I think my students know that I'm into institutions at this juncture. Yeah. I should hope so. I um, should hope so. Okay. So the next, I think we are now moving on to the next article, which is um, someone you know involved. It is a memo trejo. You got a memo in here. Got a memo with a couple of other folks, Shannon uh, Matias and Sandra Lay. Where is Memo now? He's at Notre Dame, I believe. Oh, really? That's perfect for him. Yes, it is. That it is actually. He was at Duke when we were in grad school, and he not a good fit. Yeah, it was. It was a terrible fit, actually. I think he hated it. Um, but yeah, now he's at Notre Dame. Um, this is a lovely study, um, and in terms of. Oh, he's I'm so stoked. He's a he's a wonderful like a very one of your teachers. He was he was an excellent professor. I audited a class with him over at Duke, and um, yeah, really, really smart guy. Um, and I don't know his co-authors. I think Sandra Lay was one of his grad students at Notre Dame. Mm-hmm. I don't know. He's published with. He's done quite a lot with her, or maybe a colleague at Notre Dame. I don't actually mm-hmm. know. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know the other person. Um, but anyway, the article is called Indigenous Resistance to Criminal Governance, Why okay. Regional Ethnic Autonomy Institutions Protect Communities from Narco Rule in Mexico. Um, oh, and what I was going to say is for the students that are still um, not finishing this semester, um, this is a really nice research design. Um, wow. he, he just does a, it's really quite lovely. I mean, you know. As a research sign, he does a, a paired comparison of two indigenous mm-hmm. regions in the highlands um, of Guerrero mm-hmm. and Chihuahua. So he takes two states and two kind of indigenous Northern, communities, one in the Southern. north and one in the south, um, both ideal zones for drug cultivation and trafficking. So they're both areas that we would expect to see drug traffickers mm-hmm. involved and active. 
Um, yeah, and so that's like the basic part of the study. He does some else here because he's, you know, multi-method, whatever. He's some, We're there's a little bit of large end. But I focus mostly on this pair comparison, which is, of course, because it's Memo Trejo. That's the part that he's actually, I think, most interested in and yeah. excited about. Um, so I'm going to give you the opening, and then we'll talk about the substantive stuff. Um, and this okay. actually really could have been the also sat at the front of the other paper that we read, but I thought this one was kind of okay. meatier, so I ended up doing it second yeah, anyway. Um, so again, this is at the opening of this piece uh, from pages 181 and 82. Um, so after 16 years of intercartel wars for control over drug trafficking routes, drug violence in Mexico rose to new levels following the 2006 federal inter intervention when President Felipe Calderón declared war on the cartels and deployed the military to the country's most conflictive regions. The war on drugs led to the fragmentation of Mexico's five dominant cartels into new mm -hmm. cartels and hundreds of smaller organized criminal groups, which he gives the acronym OCGs. OTGs? OC, Organized Criminal Groups, OCGs. OCGs. And to the proliferation of multiple wars in urban and rural regions. This is when we were there. It is. This yeah. is the spike in violence that was happening while we were there was because of right. Calderon's splintering. This was the kingpin strategy. We've right. talked about this for the Latin America and the world class, right? right? What happens right. when you take out the top is like you make these more uh, splintered groups. We've talked about this also with the Yasher book that we read mm -hmm. in, in mm -hmm. BJS, something kind of like this. Anyway, uh, and we also sort of talked, we've talked about this, you and me, with the Latin America and the world class, but also in, in the BJS, uh, that to finance these wars, cartels and their criminal associates expanded their activities into a wide range right. of criminal industries, right. including kidnapping for ransom, extortion, human smuggling, the looting of natural resources, and capturing municipal public resources. Whereas between 1990 and 2006, Victims of the intercartel wars were mainly cartel members in their private militias. After 2006, OCGs began targeting civilians and local government officials. Right, So here we get now targeting outside of just the cartels. Unlike in the past, when they primarily fought to control drug trafficking routes, after 2006, cartels and their associates used violence to gain de facto control over local governments, populations, and territories, seeking to develop subnational criminal governance regimes. Okay. So they're looking at this period once this drug and organized criminal activity becomes much more embedded in um, communities, in the uh -huh. state, right? Or not, like it was attached to the state before in a certain way, but where it's like now this violence has expanded out of where it used to mm -hmm. just be between cartels and now mm -hmm. there's many more actors that are right. being right uh, right 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 it's like when we violence. were in Oaxaca and there was that assassination right in like up in Reforma or something that everyone was yeah. like oh my god like it right. never happens here right right okay got you well, and even that, though, I would say is actually was, I mean, the students don't need to know this, but that was like still, there was like crossfire problems, but it was still like cartel, cartel issues. Right. Right. And this would be like that, like, you're, you know, like the peasants are now being, right, like killed, you know, right. that there's like kidnapping of ordinary people, sort of almost thinking back in Mexico of the prior to when we were there, what Diana and our friends would talk about, about the like Sequestro Express and some of the kidnappings that were 
Right, right, right. right. You know, the reason that, like, when we were in the taxi and we thought when we were in that unlicensed taxi and we're like, oh, God, what have we done? Right. Like, it was fine. Everything was fine. But, like, it was like that residual fear of, like, that kind of thing where you're sort of, I think Uh it sounds like some of this has involved more of this type of kidnapping the wealthy and, like, these kind of things as opposed to, and, like, you know, attacking communities more than just fighting between cartel leadership. Right. 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 Okay. And you want me to go for dive it. in here. All right. This is from page 182. This is a recent piece too, 2019 as yes, well? Yes, both. They're from cool. a sort of special series, I think, in, in lore. Okay. Although cartels and their associates have tried in recent years to become de facto rulers of Mexico's mountainous indigenous regions, their success rate has been mixed. In fact, several studies have noted that compared to urban centers, the presence of multiple OCGs and the outbreak of bitter turf wars in the country's indigenous regions have been relatively limited. Okay. Right. So overall, we see the less violence or less of the the cartel's penetration into indigenous areas is less. But one of the sort of interesting things that is pointed out in this article is that it still varies. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's not uniform. Uniformly, it's not just like if you have an indigenous community right. with indigenous Suddenly traditions, they you're drugs. free of drugs, right? right? Like that that is not in fact the case, right? That like there is no very magical Indians. No magical Indians, thank God. right? Um so he's this study they not just I of mm-hmm. course know Trejo, so but right. like they there's two women involved too, just to be clear. Mm-hmm. Um <laughs> so that they that they <laughs> yeah, some internalized sexism here. So they anyway, they they they're sort of showing that okay, what then explains the variation that we see within indigenous communities. Okay. And I have an answer. Go for it. From page 184, a major factor that distinguishes indigenous villages from each other is whether they participate in social movements and have a history of independent social mobilization. Indigenous movements empower villages to connect with other villages in the pursuit of common goals, such as land redistribution or ethnic autonomy. Through these linkages, communities can scale up local claims, making movements more resilient. If the leaders of one community become the targets of state repression or attacks by non-state armed groups, other co-ethnic villagers can come to their rescue and prevent the movement from collapsing. We argue that these translocal networks forged over decades of mobilization empower communities to resist and contain drug cartels through two mechanisms. The cooperation and solidarity from other villages connected to the network offer them strength in numbers, providing external protections against cartel conquest. External protection then serves as a safeguard for internal accountability controls associated with indigenous customary laws, which protect local indigenous authorities and populations from corrupting from the corrupting power of the narcos. Okay, I th- I don't understand the second one as well. So let okay. me see if let me repeat back what I get out of this. Definitely. So there's a lot here. First there's of all, there's a lot. Yeah, I'm, and I'm sorry. It's a really long one. Yeah, it's got a lot of nuance. A lot of probably a lot of nuance that I'm missing here. But I guess what I'm hearing is where there's a history of pre-existing ethnic mobilization. Mm-hmm you are more likely to see the repulsion of the narcos. Right. Okay. So where where indigenous people have mobilized to make other claims. Right. Often about land. Often about um, land. Sometimes against government repression or almost always probably also against government repression. Right. 
then you see more um, that it's more likely that there won't be the presence of multiple OCGs right. in that place. Right. And one okay. of the things that comes in the second part of this quote that you just read right. that was about the translocal. Translocal between different municipalities is, or between different communities. Yes. Is partly related to the way that that social mobilization happened in particularly in southern Mexico, which right. was that it wasn't... That's all I was thinking about was Oaxaca. It wasn't just um, indigenous peoples alone. They were all almost always in these cases linked in some way with either left political parties mm -hmm. or left political activists, if not parties, and the Catholic Church. Mm -hmm. So that there were also sort of larger classic organizational, classical, classic Trejo move. They were also linked to these larger structures that had broader geographic reach. So that you okay. had a history of... Um, okay, so the translocal... Now, hang on. So that was... So it's not just where they have... It's not just where there's a history of indigenous so mobilization, but... Here's what he's saying. He's saying a couple of things. Yeah. Or they're saying. I got to stop saying he. Yeah, you got to stop saying he. It's like, I mean, who knows? Who, who knows who did all who the work? Who did all the work on this? Well, ooh, anyway, ooh. so, no. So they, <laughs> so they, what was I even going to say? Now I've totally two lost things my train of Two thought. things they're saying. Um, First, that there's, where oh, there is indigenous so, mobilization. So one of the things about, about indigenous communities in Mexico post a lot of this mobilization is that there has been the um, institutionalization to some degree of what's called usos y costumbres, uh -huh, uh -huh. which you know about. Um, which shout are, out to Matt Cleary. Shout out to all, like, lots of our friends, right? Um, which is where you have these um, indigenous practices that mm -hmm. take, take on a kind of legal... Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm status mm -hmm. right right and and so that some of these existed in communities so in the community in chihuahua that they look at that's their case where the they are unable to repel the narcos right i don't think of that as a, i don't think of the north as a place with a lot of indigenous mobilization so there was very limited mobilization mm -hmm. where th there was limited involvement of the Catholic Church and left parties to right. link it's communities. Not a big left area. They also the other thing that where in the South was big was when the Zapatista uprising happens in '94. It prompts large scale Lots indigenous mobilization and also mm -hmm. large scale indigenous mobilization mm -hmm. that uh, I didn't actually know this, but apparently the North was and Ch Chihuahua anyway was not part of so mm -hmm. the the groups in chihuahua didn't participate in those indigenous mobilizations or that were sort of spearheaded by the zapatistas mm -hmm. making lots of claims but they still had the usos y costumbres like they in still chihuahua. have traditional practices okay. right but it wasn't sort of buttressed by this sort of broader kind of translocal as, as they call it right this like broader kind of community connections were not forged to other indigenous groups. Well, to, to like other indigenous towns. To other indigenous towns. Right. So it's like so. There's sort of these indigenous towns in Chihuahua are kind of isolated from one another. Exactly. Okay. So I don't know because the article, if I maybe I didn't read it carefully enough, but the I don't I don't remember whether or not there was a there was definitely a map 
of the Guerrero community, and I can't remember mm-hmm. if there was a similar map of the Chihuahua one. Uh, I can't like picture it in my head. Um, but the, yeah, that there's essentially like lot the quotes and stuff demonstrate the sort of aloneness of this Chihuahua community versus this like very dense linkages across municipalities okay. of the right in Guerrero. In, in Guerrero, yeah. Interesting. And that those, I mean, according to this story, they, those translocal links are partially also then reinforcing the the usos y costumbres, right? The kind That's of the traditional, second part that I didn't understand. Right. Um, which I, I've given you a few charts later that okay. we can so talk let me, about. Okay, so let me repeat back to you what I understand about this usos y costumbres thing. Yeah. Is that where, where there is a... Um, like active presence of usos y costumbres. Like, I actually don't understand this. I still don't understand this. I think it's gonna come. I think it's gonna make more sense as we go. Okay. But I think the important part is this sense that, like, because of this history of mobilization in the mm-hmm. South, that mm-hmm. communities were better linked. Right. Like, that's basically what you need to know. Okay. And that because communities were better linked, there are more points of accountability. Okay. Internally, I and see. then a critical mass. To like push against external forces. Okay. So I see their argument as really two. I would explain their argument slightly differently than I think they did, which is that those those linkages between communities give the ability to actually have the potential. Again, if we think back to the previous article we just read, like if if you only have like a hundred people right, right in your posse, right. you get strength in numbers. But then you also, because of usos y costumbres, you have a high trust in those. No, it's no. like you're everybody. So it's it's that you're. It's not just that you're disappointing your own community, but that the neighboring communities are also going to see your decline if you mm-hmm. don't sort of stand strong against the narcos. I see. Right. So that there I is see. like that. This is now backed by. In order to maintain those alliances, you have to also maintain your you know, your honor and your right. I think I, I think I'm understanding. Okay. I think I'm understanding. It, you said it'll become a little more clear. I think so. When I, think I read these charts. Is that what you've got left? The charts, we're onto the charts. I'm onto the charts, I think. Yeah, so this is like the way that they explain how this thing that you just read works is through these okay. charts. Okay, we've got to take it over, over to better lighting here. Okay, internal control of crack PC members. Okay, so the... Communal assembly. Did I tell you? I told you what those are, right? That's the, like, community justice and the community police. Okay. These are some weird charts, man. (laughs) I love them. They're so funny. These are weird PowerPoint slides here. All right, let me see. So internal controls of the communal police. There is a communal assembly, and there is a communal cargo system. The communal assembly generates accountability through good selection, oversight, and sanction. And the communal cargo system uses shame and honor to create self-restraint. Okay, so let me give you a little bit of their explanation of some of these things. (laughs) This is some wackadoo stuff here. All right. So, good selection. Good selection. I mean, so part of the fact that we have these institutions also matters. One of the things that 
they go far more deeply into what this looks like in Guerrero, right? Because basically, if we go to the negative case of Chihuahua, um, uh-huh. the po- basically they don't they haven't made their own justice system in Chihuahua. Okay. So in in Chihuahua, even though there are still traditional practices, they're still relying on actual just mu- like the municipal police from the Mexican state, and okay. they're using the sort of justice system of the Mexican state where. One of the things that's happened in Guerrero is like through these processes, they have really created their own institutions of policing and justice. Right. So part of the story, I think, is that they have their own institutions and then you're like, okay, fine. So they have their own institutions, but why don't they have the same problems that they have in the Mexican state, which is that they're corrupt. Right. Mm -hmm. So the ones we see in Chihuahua, it's like the police are corrupt they don't, you know, nobody is actually like holding the narcos to account because they're all bought off or terrified that they're going to be killed okay. or their family's going to be killed, right? And so in in Guerrero, you don't actually have, in these communities that he's looking at, you don't have the Mexican police and judicial system. You have this complete, like they've walled this off, right? So that they're using their own community police and they're using their own justice system, which is what the crack is their kind of justice system. Okay. And so the next, this so sort I, of chart is explaining why they're not subject to the same corruption okay. as the traditional police. So the chart I just looked at. Correct. Okay, shows us that. So in, in a way, then to link this with the other piece, part of what these authors are doing is trying to explain why and how, really how more than why, Mm-hmm. how these sort of community justice organizations are able to avoid the kind of corruption that has plagued state, why they are more trust, or how, what, what kinds of mechanisms they put in place to generate that trust. To push out those, but, well, but also to push out those, not just trust, but how they themselves don't become corrupt. That's Right. So not just why right. the community would trust would, them, but also, right, right that how they, they expel possible bad actors. Correct. Correct. So like on the good selection, right? Uh-huh. I mean, these are little communities. First right. off, um, and so here's a quote: Las Vegas or something like that. <laughs> yeah. Right. Absolutely. Um, That's in Guerrero, right? Las Vegas. I think that was in Guerrero. Uh huh. Um. So crack and PC personnel and their advisors believe that their members do not become corrupt because communal assemblies select respected individuals for their job. A crack commander expressed it thus, quote, as a community member, you know who the good and bad guys are. In fact, those who get selected to serve in the crack or PC often have long histories of service. Right. Um, the one of the things that is important that you know and that gets mentioned in this article mm-hmm. is a lot of these they're called often called cargos, mm-hmm. and they're done like they're not paid necessarily. You just like cycle into these positions as part of your community service. It's like volunteer fire departments, kind of yeah, right. But so it's like it's not yes, it's a different kind of the selection process is 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 there. And then there's some sort of fun stuff with the shame and honor, which is was also on your chart. Yeah, right? that was of the, part of how they exercise self restraint. Right. So, okay, first of all, you're, like, careful about who you select. You're not, like, selecting that, you know, nephew of somebody who's a mm-hmm. little, you know, dodgy. You can't trust him. Right? That these are 
Okay, but then you have the shame and honor. So beyond instrumental motivations, I, don't, I didn't write the page numbers for these, but somewhere after the charts. Okay. Um, beyond instrumental motivations associated with community accountability, social shame and honor ingrained in the cargo system are powerful deterrents of corruption. As okay. a Catholic priest from the region put it, PC members think, if I become corrupt and get caught, I will face social shame. And the flip side of shame is the honor bestowed for co good community service and the pride that crack PC members feel in being part of an institution that is diametrically different from state and municipal police mm -hmm. forces mm -hmm. and local public prosecutor offices. Mm -hmm. A PC commander stated plainly, we are different from the municipal police. Right. One of his rank and file members added, for them, it is all about money. And a crack regional commander elaborated, the municipal president of San Luis trusts the crack PC more than his own police. They take bribes, but we don't. We don't right. charge for our services, and we work diligently. Right. right. Right, so that you have this, I mean, this is sort of a, this is like, it's not, I wouldn't call it trust, but certainly a kind of social embeddedness, a kind of social capital where there's like. I mean, it's an interesting, it's an interesting, I mean, it's an interesting problem because I guess what I'm thinking about here is that if you're going to professionalize your police and your law enforcement, sure, you had better damn well professionalize them, right, and not halfway professionalize them, right. Yeah, right. I that like I part of the problem, yeah. it seems like, is that the municipal police are supposedly professionalized, but they're not. But they're not really because right. they're not paid like professionals, right? They're not really professionalized and so they don't give a shit about the community because they're not actually deeply embedded in it or if they are deeply embedded in it they don't have another source of livelihood right or another source of identity other than being a municipal police officer or whatever right, right? and they're not actually paid enough to avoid corruption right. or feel safe enough to avoid corruption right right uh, either way right? right and so in a way it can the the community justice organizations they work in part i mean it's interesting that it's like they bestow honor mm -hmm. that the municipal police just simply cannot bestow in part because it's just a job i guess right Right, and I mean, this also is that like a little bit of a. I don't know where I'm going with this, but it's well. It's there's super also this chicken me. and egg problem, right? Where it's like the municipal police aren't respected. I mean, you guys could think about this about the like my students. I mean, of the like Clinton police, right? You mean like KTP, yeah. Kirkland Town Police. They're not Clinton police. Well, you know, <laughs> I mean, they have mm -hmm. like what two vehicles? I don't know. I think there's two. Right. Right, and I mean, like, what people think about them, how much of a mm -hmm. sort of... Raggedy I mean, I police I, force, I assume. What did you say? I assume they're pretty raggedy. Well, it's just those two... Two guys. I maybe. mean, it's not very many guys. Right. And they really, I think, only have two cars. So maybe there's four guys, but two cars. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Not big, not probably tremendously. Right, these aren't, like, the people that you are super i mean not like you couldn't be afraid of them i guess but like this is not i don't know but i think if you think about the kirkland police and then try to make that even poorer and more mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. that, that's sort of what you're looking at so it's not 
necessarily yeah. a super respected. Yeah. You yeah. know, it's it's interesting. I I find that actually really, I find that to be really interesting. I find that to be really interesting. And I mean, maybe if you were in the Clinton community, I don't know whether those police would be more respected, right? Whether I, no I know idea. certainly when I talk to my college students, I don't think they feel that way. Um, they don't respect the KTP. Yeah. Correct. Mm -hmm. But like, I don't know whether in the whether town, Clintonians whether there's more embeddedness the in the, like, whether they're like, oh, that's Tom. So cousin. I can't remember what their names are. But in any case, right, that like, you know. I used to go out with my sister. <laughs> Whatever. Yeah. Or this, like, what a good guy, what an upstanding guy. I don't know. but Right. I don't know. either. I don't either. Um, so I can look at this chart on 170, 195, excuse me. Um, and I assume this is Chihuahua. No, this no? is just more. More I on Guerrero? Yeah, because Chihuahua is just like this all absent, so they there's got no nothing. chart. Yeah. They're just all, right. all, I don't know if I have that quote or if I ended up putting it on the cutting block, but it was so like real sad. here we have another way that accountability and self-restraint are generated. Accountability through the communal assembly and self-restraint, again, through the cargo system and the council of elders. And the outcome here is that the youth do not join narcos and households harvest limited poppy for survival. That's like a... That's like a poem there. <laughs> harvest limited poppy for survival. It's like Ginsburg shit right I there. Haiku. <laughs> um, so I think the other part of this is that it's also depressing like gang or narco membership. Right. That these embedded the communities, I mean, I think a little bit, you know, I, I don't know. I haven't read the analysis section yet of Kevin's paper. I'm sorry. Sorry, I promise tomorrow you're... You. You're on my list. Um, but he was, he's writing a yes. little bit about this sort of religious embeddedness in particular um, in communities. But, he, you know, here we're seeing this. And, and I have this one quote from here, um, which is about this and related. So as one PC commander expressed to us, in the mo most remote and impoverished areas of the Montaña, villagers supplement the practice of subsistence agriculture with poppy cultivation. It is a survival strategy, he said. But okay. communal shame and the prospect of having to undergo re-education with the elders induce self-restraint. Families wow. do not completely abandon corn and replace it with poppies. When a family member tries to strike a more ambitious deal with the narcos, they hold him back. Once, a woman brought her son for re-education because he was getting too close to the narcos. A PC commander noted. That's interesting. I mean, it's really so. And so, so the argument in this piece is that the reason that community is able to repel the the lure of the narcos mm -hmm. is not is not only because of the strong indigenous identity there. Like, it's not really mm -hmm. that. It's not because like, oh, they have such a strong culture, but. Right, that that may be part of it, I think, but it but can't fully it really, explain it, it. It doesn't work on its own. Right. It works through this um, connectedness to trans-local mobilized indigeneity. And institutions that are... So, so okay, so trans-local indigeneity plus a fairly expansive usos y costumbres. 
Right, one that has basically supplanted the state, I think, the, the mm-hmm. Mexican state in, in some ways, right? Like, I mean, in, in the Chihuahua case where they're so, like, they're basically like, you have this like some quotes from the like, I don't know, people in that community that are basically like, yeah, like we try, but like we're terrified and basically assume that there's narcos like in our meetings and, you know, that like right. that they just, that there wasn't enough critical mass to repel them and then how do you keep them out? Like, so it like, seems like that that external barrier is important, but then the internal barriers of these sort of institutions of re-education mm-hmm. and, you know, they do all this justice internally where they, instead of going to jail when you are in trouble for something, okay. you go through these, like, processes of, but you I, know, community service and whatnot. There's and part of me that still feels like this is another question-begging exercise so like i mean the translocal okay that part i get yeah right that like those those links and those networks exist or they don't and there's a variety of things that could explain that that may the 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 existence of translocal networks or not Uh but the part about like having institutionalized accountability mechanisms that seems to me to like demand right that's that seems to me like question begging right there like I mean, I think that, like, in a certain degree, I guess, I mean, I don't know. I don't know if it was well explained in this piece or not. I would have to... Like, I mean, I guess I'm asking the question, like, why do some communities have more... So it seemed to me that the argument that they were making was that this is built up by being in such a dense area of these institutions. Okay. Right, like it seemed to me that that was. But why are some areas more dense than others? Well, I mean, this may have some accidents of history. I'm not sure. Right. I mean, there were just like that that those indigenous communities in the south stayed more isolated and then more intact and more. I don't know. I don't know enough about Mm -hmm. the northern. I know far more about shit about the north, man. About the northern indigenous communities, I don't know. And I mean, I would even. I was sort of thinking about this actually as we were talking. Like I wasn't thinking mm-hmm. about when I was reading it, but you know, I mean, one of the things about Oaxaca, and I don't know about, I don't know as much about Guerrero, is that the municipalities. Oaxaca has like a gazillion municipalities, right? Yeah. And they're tiny. Yeah. And so, like, you would have all of these small communities, but they would all be. I mean, they're separated in some sense because you're in mountains and whatever, uh-huh. but, like, they're still all, like, they're very small, right? In my, my understanding, if I would go pull out a map, which I guess I could do, but I'm not, but is that, like, in the north, those prov- those um, more sprawly, municipalities right? are bigger, right? So, I mean, that you may have larger municipalities, you may be farther from your neighbors, you may have more people or at least more territory across which, I mean, like, really, some of those Oaxaca municipalities, like, everybody is literally, like, right there, right? You're not spread out across huge sort of terrain. Um, so I don't know if that some of it is actually about, like, accidents of geography. Right, um, right. I don't either. I don't. I mean, it's it's an interesting. I mean, and it's just, yeah. I mean, the North is just real different, right? Yeah. 
Well, the geography is very different, I think. Chihuahua is a big, big state. It's huge. And like, how many municipalities does it have? I'm not going to be able to. I mean, I'm pulling up Google here. It's not going (laughs) to give me that much. But like, when I look at it on the map, right, Chihuahua is much bigger. Like, you could fit three Oaxacas in it, at least three, maybe four Oaxacas in it. And you could fit probably five Guerreros, maybe six Guerreros in Chihuahua. Right. And, yeah, I mean, it's way bigger. And All right, so Chihuahua has 67 municipalities. Uh Uh-huh. I want to say Oaxaca has like 300, but I'll look up Guerrero since that's the comparison yeah. case here. And then we, we've been going for an hour. So oh, my God. we got to get out of here. I know. It's because we like talked about uh, science at the beginning. No, that's not, a, that's not <laughs> the reason. Broma. All right. Let me tell you. How, and Guerrero, which is much smaller, has 81. So I think you see more municipalities for a much smaller place, right? right? So you just have more local control, right? And well, and like more, I mean, I don't want to call it density in these rural areas, but like, yeah, you're more close, you're closer. There you're, are more units of there are more units of governance. Yeah, you don't well, you and also your unit doesn't cover so much terrain. Terrain. So you, thinking about those like mechanisms of shame and like whatever are going to be easier if you're like. Right. Geographically close than geographically spread. I don't know. That is not in the article, but no, I mean, it's, but it is. I mean, it, to me, it's it's an interesting question that yeah. uh, there's not a great answer. Like, I mean, I, like I'm not faulting the piece for not having an answer. No, and like these guys may have and ladies <laughs> may have uh, may have thought about that right. um, hmm. in another. Another piece. That's piece. how science works, That's you know. I mean, works. piece by piece, brick by brick, row by row, All right, drip BGS. by drip. Um, it's, it's been, been real. real. It's been real. <laughs> it's about time for bed, is what it is. Yeah. I'm pretty pooped, you know. Uh, yeah. So I I hope that you guys are uh, are are getting getting through the end of the semester, and I hope you've enjoyed the podcasts and. I will look forward to the final reads of everybody's. Well, I have a few more analyses to read, and then uh, final papers rolling in. And take some time for yourselves after this oh, semester is definitely over. Definitely, whatever take that can possibly look like. Whatever that means in your situation. I mean, honestly, like, just give yourself a minute. You know. Yeah. yeah. It's tough. It's tough. Um, but this has been fun and I mean there's a whole world of adventures and ideas to be had you know podcast things to be podcasted things to be podcasted alright guys be safe and uh, be well oh congratulations seniors